chapter 15. We're going to cover quite a bit of these verses, Lord willing, but I want to read to you verse 12 just to establish the context here. Paul says, now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Please bow with me in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your wonderful word, this wonderful day. Father, we know that because Christ is risen, preaching is not in vain. That our faith is not in vain. Father, I ask that you would lead me and, and guide me, use my, my frail mind and my frail tongue to, to magnify Christ this day. Father, we need your help. We need your spirit to, to lead us, to guide us, to convict us, to encourage us, to give us hope. Father, we ask that those who do not know you would would see the, the beauty of Christ, that the heinousness of sin, that their hearts would be melted before you. And Father, may those of us who know you walk away today more hopeful, more joyful because of what Christ has done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In our text today, Paul is clearly addressing an issue. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? In other words, Christians living in Corinth were denying the physical resurrection of Christ. They were denying the, the, the physical resurrection of the human body, that, that this was possible. Now, why would someone do this? Why would those in a church deny the physical resurrection? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that some of them were mixing their faith with, with some of their old beliefs. They had believed for many years that, that resurrection of the dead was simply not possible. And now they are trying to mix in what they thought they knew with this new faith that they had. Second possibility is that the dominant beliefs in their culture tempted them to compromise their beliefs. Imagine the, the, the pressures all around them from the so-called intellectuals, the, the, the establishment there, that, that you cannot believe in a resurrection of the dead. 
What did this culture believe about resurrection from the dead? Well, we know when Paul was in Athens, not too far from Corinth, that he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And this caused the people to insult him, to call him an idle babbler. And Paul's at the Areopagus. And the last thing he says is that God has given proof of everything Paul told him by raising Christ from the dead. And then in verse 32, we read, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. Why did they sneer at Paul? Because... In their world, resurrection from the dead was not only impossible, but it was also undesirable because of the influence there of dualism. MacArthur notes that a basic tenet of much ancient Greek philosophy was dualism, a concept generally attributed to Plato. Dualism considered everything spiritual to be intrinsically good and everything physical to be intrinsically evil. So to anyone holding that view, the idea of a resurrected body was repugnant. So in their culture, the the, the thing was to get rid of the physical body, which was evil and bad and corrupted, and and, and get rid of that thing for good. A resurrection was not only impossible, the, the Greek gods could not restore flesh, but it was undesirable. We didn't want a resurrection. So here are these... Corinthian believers in a pagan culture that denies resurrection from the dead, that does not care for the idea of a resurrection from the dead. And these believers are being influenced by the pagan philosophies and religions around them. In other words, they were trying to mix biblical Christianity that Paul preached to them, that they had heard and believed with popular philosophies of their day. Essentially, they had the same problem that we have today. In our culture, it is still folly to believe in resurrection of the dead unless you're talking about a zombie. And many people over the years have tried to disprove the resurrection over and over again. So many different hypotheses of, of how we can explain away the fact that there was a man named Jesus who, who, who died, he was crucified, he was put in a grave, and then was seen alive teaching. So you can go online and find all of these different theories as to how this happened. Simple attempts to explain it away. And some have tried in vain to, to find the tomb of Jesus in order to prove that his bones are still there. And the question we ask is, why such an effort to do this? I was reading an article some years ago about a man who had claimed to to find the ossuary, our our bone box of Jesus. And, And this article really demonstrates their goal. It said, such a find would disprove the resurrection and destroy the credibility of Christianity. That's their goal, to destroy the credibility of Christianity. 
But, but wait a minute. Pagans are saying that if they can disprove the resurrection, Christianity will be destroyed. But, but would our religion really be destroyed if there was no resurrection from the dead? Is, is that the, the proper Christian position? After all, there, there, are, there are many professing Christians and, and even liberal theologians who say we don't need a resurrection from the dead. At least not a physical one. We don't need a resurrection from the dead at all. Some of you may have run across a man by the name of Brandon Robertson. He calls himself a reverend. This man is a wolf in wolf's clothing. He's not even hiding it. He's not even pretending to be a sheep. This man who has thousands of followers today, professing to be Christians, recently said that he personally believes in a resurrection. But, but, but you, don't need to be, you don't need to believe that in order to be a part of his community. You don't need to believe the way that he does. It's, it's, it's simply his understanding that there is a resurrection, but, but it doesn't have to be that way. A man who's professing to be a pastor, leading thousands of people in this direction. And here's what I find to be odd. Non-believers say, if I can disprove the resurrection... Christianity is false. Professing Christians are saying, I don't need a resurrection. I find it very strange that non-believers have a better understanding of orthodoxy than many professing Christians. Something is wrong with this picture. But Christians today, just like Christians in Corinth, are trying to mix their beliefs with popular opinion. But dear friends, we must realize that, that, that pagan philosophies and religions are at war with Christianity. They are at war with one another. They cannot be married. And it is shameful that, that unbelievers are, are more aware of this than professing Christians. We've seen this for many years now with things such as evolution. The scientists say evolution is fact. And they repeat it enough times that everybody starts believing it. And so the Christians say, if we're going to have a credible religion, we have to deny the Genesis account. And we have to mix evolution with a biblical account. So we come up with this sort of God-directed evolution, a theistic evolution. And Christians do this, while men like Thomas Huxley, a leading humanist in Darwin's day, saw it as folly to try to mix the Bible with evolution. A humanist would mock those who tried to marry and harmonize Christianity with evolution, because this is what he knew. If you, as a professing Christian, deny the account written in your Genesis, then you have no reason to believe the things that Paul said in the New Testament. He saw it as an absolute contradiction. 
The pagans, the the intellectual so-called pagans of the day, saying you cannot blend these things. And the believer saying, yes, we can. So this is what was happening in Corinthians. Believers denying the possibility of a resurrection. Saying that we can be Christians and not believe in resurrection from the dead. Dear friends, is this true? Does the, revela- does the resurrection prove or disprove our religion? Does Christianity rise or fall on the resurrection? I like the way Dr. Henry Morris answered this question years ago. He said the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. But this is why people want to disprove it. Listen to this. If the resurrection did take place, then Christ is God. And the Christian faith is absolute truth. That's what unbelievers are afraid of. If this person declared himself to be God, was crucified, and actually rose from the dead, this man has power. There is something to this religion. Without the resurrection, Christianity has no value at all. It is actually folly. Absolute folly. And once again, it's sad that that pagans realize this while professing Christians do not. So, So here's what Paul is going to do in this passage for us today. First, he's going to give us proof of the resurrection. And then he's going to show the necessity of the resurrection. So starting in verse 1, the proof of the resurrection. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved, If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So before Paul actually gives his first defense of the resurrection, he tells the the Christians there, the Corinthians there, that, that what he's about to tell them is nothing new. It is the very same gospel that he first preached to them. The same gospel they had received and by which they were saved if their faith was Genuine. Why this change in belief? I preached the resurrection to you. I preached this biblical gospel to you. You received it. You believed it. Why all of a sudden are you no longer believing in resurrection? Paul preached it. They accepted it. But now being influenced by the so-called educated people of their day who deny that a resurrection is possible. Paul tells him that his message has not changed. The gospel has not changed. 
Dear friends, how badly do we need to hear this today? The gospel has not changed. What does Paul say to the Galatians? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and in turning to a different gospel. This is what the Corinthians were doing as well. They were turning to a different gospel that no longer included the resurrection. But Paul says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. How careful and precise we ought to be with the gospel. Lest we be the ones who who Paul is saying, let that person be accursed. And you may say, of course, there are false gospels out there. We know this. But we know better than that in the Reformed world, don't we? We know so much better than that. We don't hold to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But dear friends, what about the gospel of anti-racism? That, dear friends, is another gospel being embraced by those in the Reformed community. And here's the ironic thing. What Paul says here to the Corinthians applies directly. You were not saved through the gospel of anti-racism, so why are you embracing it now? It did not save you. It is not the gospel that was preached to you. It is not the gospel of the Apostle Paul. It is not the gospel that has saved anyone, so why is it now being preached. The gospel has not changed. If you are a Christian, you were saved through the biblical gospel, and there is not a better gospel for you to start sharing with people. Even as I love what George Whitfield said, he said, many men can preach the gospel better than me, but no man can preach a better gospel. There isn't a better gospel. There isn't a more relevant gospel out there. Let us be careful that we don't try to mix things with our Christianity that that, that ultimately makes us embrace another gospel. Lest we be like the, the Galatians who were turning away from the gospel that was preached to them, or like the Corinthians who were turning away from the biblical gospel which included The resurrection. And so Paul begins to build his case in verse number three. He says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Paul received the gospel himself. He did not create it. He was not the author of it. This gospel which which Paul preached came from God, inspired by God. It was not the invention of Paul or any other man. This is what Paul wants them to know. The philosophies that you are holding to, 
which go against God, which go against Christianity. Those are man-made philosophies. This gospel which I preach to you came directly from God. And what exactly is this gospel that Paul first received and then preached? He tells us that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul summarizes the gospel in three points. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and on the third day he rose again. This gospel which includes the resurrection, is from God. And this is Paul's first defense. This is not man-made. This is from God. But Paul adds another defense in these first few verses. Did you notice how Paul said three times, according to the scriptures? What is Paul doing there? He is reminding them that everything in the Old Testament and the New Testament points to a death, burial, and resurrection. The the Old Testament, there, there, there are prophecies of the resurrection. Christ spoke constantly on earth about about dying and being raised up again. This is nothing new. This is in line with orthodoxy. The the scriptures speak of 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 a resurrection. But also Paul is showing us the ultimate source of authority. Scripture is the ultimate authority. Christians believe in science. But when science says, your Bible is wrong, we say, no, you are wrong. Our ability to to interpret what we see around us is wrong if it contradicts what the Bible says. Scientists say people don't rise from the dead. And we say, ordinarily that's true. This is why it's such a big deal that Christ actually rose from the dead. That man I told you about earlier, Brandon Robertson, this man whose, whose videos go viral, his TikTok theology. This is what he said about the Hebrew Bible. Mind you, he's a professing Christian. He says, in the Hebrew Bible, they were not trying to write historical accounts of what actually happened. They were taking bits of history and adding narrative to it to communicate deeper spiritual truths. So he says, the story of Jonah. Did Jonah get swallowed by a giant fish? No, he did not. So how can you do that, Brandon? How can you, how can you say this is, this is false, but I still believe this Bible? Well, this is why. And, and here's his tip for reading the Bible. It doesn't have to be factually true to be actually true. Figure that out. I guess facts are not actual truth to him. But this is his preface to to speaking about the resurrection. The the Bible just gives me stories. It doesn't give me facts. And and I get to decide what's inspiration and what's not. So the type of person who holds to this view 
does not look at Scripture as authoritative, and therefore they can deny the resurrection because Scripture is not my authority. Dear friends, when we, when we hold to this sort of view that denies the authority of Scripture, it is inevitable that we fall into heresy. Because we look at a text in Scripture and say, I know better than this. This can't be inspired because God wouldn't say that. I can say something better than that. And we fall into heresy. When Scripture is no longer authoritative, we embrace all sorts of doctrines that are false. Including saying that the resurrection is not essential. But for Paul, his gospel is based upon the scriptures. Christ died. He was buried. He rose again according to the scriptures. And he goes on to give us more evidence in verses 5 through 8. He says, he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. This evidence, dear friends, is overwhelming. I was reading an article that said that there is no archaeological evidence for the resurrection. Therefore, the only evidence we have goes against the resurrection. But then again, Christians don't care about evidence. What folly. This book that can easily be proved to be the most historically accurate book ever written gives us this evidence of the resurrection. Listen to what he said. More than 500 people saw the risen Lord. If you don't think this is evidence, think about this. Let's say that you, somebody you knew were, was brutally attacked. And there were 500 people who saw it happen. You go into a courtroom and you hear the, the eyewitness testimony of 500 people saying this person attacked your loved one. And the judge says, I don't see any evidence for that. What would you say? There were 500 eyewitnesses. What, what do you mean there's no evidence? 500 people saw him. In our court of law today, you don't even need one eyewitness. I heard of a case where there was no eyewitnesses and no murder weapon. And yet a person was charged with murder. And yet we have 500 eyewitnesses. Did you notice what else Paul said there? He said he appeared to over 500 brethren at once. This makes his case even stronger. Why? Because if you appear to 500 people separately, 
They can all deny it. But if he appeared to, to 500 of us right here in this room together, you can't deny it because I saw that you saw him. You can't say you were not there. We all seen each other, so we all we are all accountable. None of us can deny it because we can say he was there, she was there, that person was there. But he takes it even further than that. He says, most of whom still remain today, but some have fallen asleep. What he's saying is this. If you think I'm, I'm fibbing, you can go and ask them. Because out of these 500 eyewitnesses who saw them at the same time, most of them are still alive as I write this to you. If you don't believe that Christ was resurrected, he says, go and ask the majority of these eyewitnesses who can validate what I'm saying to you. You can't build a stronger case than this. But Paul adds, the risen Christ was also seen by James, all of the apostles, and then by Paul himself, all eyewitnesses. And then he gives us one more piece of evidence in verses 11 and 12. He says, therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? <coughs> Paul and every apostle preach the same gospel, the resurrection of Christ. And the Corinthian Christians believed the message they heard. So how could they now deny the resurrection? He, he's showing them the absurdity of this. If we preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, which means that someone actually raised from the dead, and you believe that, then how, do you, how can you say you don't believe that people can raise from the dead, rise from the dead? That's not even logical. It doesn't make sense. So this is his argument. He received the gospel from God which includes the resurrection. Christ was raised according to the scriptures. And Christ was seen by Cephas, the twelve, more than 500 brethren at once, most of whom were still alive at his writing. He was seen by James, by all of the apostles, then by Paul himself. And not only this, but they believed, that, they believed the gospel, which included the resurrection, which means that someone had to be resurrected, but now they are denying the resurrection. This makes no sense. So after giving us this evidence, Paul goes on to show us the importance of the resurrection. And he does this by way of, of demonstrating what would be true if the resurrection did not actually happen. What Paul is about to do here is called a reductio ad absurdum argument, which, which is simply a fancy word for reducing it to the absurdity. In other words, Paul is going to show us the absurdity of believing that resurrection from the dead 
is impossible. Again, this is just a way of, of proving that a premise is false by showing that its logical conclusion is absurd. So for the professing Christian who denies that resurrection is possible, Paul is going to show you the absurdity of your belief. And he starts in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. This is the logical conclusion. If it's not possible for anyone to be raised from the dead, then guess what? Not even your Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the inevitable consequence. And dear friends, we know that, that, that this is significant. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, there are serious consequences. So, so Paul goes on to build his case in verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. Ironically, those who don't believe in the resurrection are typically preaching a very empty gospel. If being raised from the dead is impossible, then, then Christ has not been raised, which means that there is no substance to our preaching. I might as well not be here. You should not be here. This is a vain thing that we are doing right now. The gospel is no longer the power of God unto salvation. And your faith is empty. It's meaningless. This word means devoid of advantage or, or benefit. There's no benefit. There's no advantage to your faith if Christ has not been raised from the dead. And he goes on. Yes. And we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Notice what he's saying. If Christ did not rise because people cannot rise from the dead, each of us here who have talked about God raising Christ from the dead are liars. And not only are we liars, but we have lied on God because we have said he raised up Christ, which he did not do if the dead cannot rise. Paul preached a risen Christ. He, he preached the resurrection of Christ so if the dead cannot rise, that means that Paul is a false teacher. Serious implications. He goes on, verse 16. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. This word, worthless, futile, useless. The same word we covered in James 1.26 a few weeks ago. 
That if anyone thinks he, he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is useless. It's vain. It's like idolatry, idol worship. When, when they were worshiping, they were trying to worship Paul. Paul made them stand up and said, turn from these worthless idols. This is our faith. It's no better than idolatry if Christ has not been raised from the dead. And, and, and even worse, because our faith is useless, it's worthless, this means that we are still in our sins. It's no coincidence that those who deny the resurrection also begin to teach things such as, well, Christ did not really come to atone for sins. We don't believe that. Because he could not have unless he was raised from the dead. But dear friends, think about the dire consequences of denying the resurrection. If Christ did not rise from the dead, you are still in your sins. <coughs> what a terrifying thought. How many of you have felt the weight and the guilt of your sins? And have experienced this terrifying thought of, of God's wrath breathing down your neck because of your sins. And then you, you felt the weight removed as you put your faith in Christ and, and believed on him and repented of your sins. You, you felt the, the, the joy of forgiveness. And then you begin to deny the resurrection. And Paul says, guess what? You do that. If Christ is not risen... All of those sins, all of that guilt, and God's wrath is placed back upon you. That is the consequence. And the resurrection did not pay for our sins, but as we've heard a couple of times already this morning, the, ev the evidence that God accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf is that he raised him from the dead. But if the resurrection did not happen, our sins are not paid for. Dear friends, we must pay for them. And this leads to verse 18. Because if our sins ha have not been paid for, then what has happened to those who have died? Verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If the resurrection is false, then Christians who have died have perished. Think of the martyrs. Burned. At the stake. Torn to pieces. By lions and tigers. All for what? Nothing. Simply to perish. Everything that Christ suffered on the cross was for nothing. Because every person who, who died believing in Christ have simply 
perished. This would be true if Christ did not rise from the grave. And because of this, he says in verse 19, if, if, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Pity those martyrs who died in vain. Pity Christ who died in vain. Different true Christians follow Christ de- denying worldly pleasures, denying the flesh, and sometimes even going to death because of our faith. But if Christ did not rise from the grave, all of this is in vain. And we ought to be pitied because we have given our lives for something that offers no hope. Notice he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ. He said, if there's no resurrection, those who have fallen asleep have perished. Okay, well, maybe then Christ just benefits us here. This is part of the blasphemy of those religions who, who say that, 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 that Christ was just a, a social justice warrior who, who just simply died to make things better here and now. There's no hope in that. Do you see that? If, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If my hope in Christ is that white people would be more nice to me as a black man, pity me. Pity me. And pity yourself, because you're pitiable people if that's what you believe. This is what he is saying. If Christ, if the hope in Christ is just about here and now, we ought to be pitied. Why? How many people throughout history have understood that a profession of faith in Christ was a death sentence? Dear friends, understand that you and I are in a very unique time in the history of the church. For most of Christian history, Christians have had it very, very difficult. But we are spoiled today. We are spoiled. And and praise God that we have it the way that we do. I'm not complaining. But, But understand, this is coming from a man such as Paul. Paul did not live his best life now. Listen to Paul's own words. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from my danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. Lord help him if he didn't have hope beyond this world. But say, 
Was Paul the type of person who would say, well, even though, you know, even if I didn't have hope, any other word, I'm glad I did those things. I'm glad I suffered that way, even though it would profit me nothing later on. Paul answers this question in verse 30 of this text. He says, and why do we stand in danger every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have had in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul says, if there is no future hope in Christ, why am I suffering and laboring for Christ? Why am I getting myself stoned and persecuted for Christ? It would be more logical for me to have as much pleasure in this life as possible if I have no future hope in Christ. If to die is not gain, then life for me is not going to be Christ. This is what Paul is saying. It would make more sense for me to eat and drink and party because tomorrow I die. I might as well live it up. Dear friends, this is the logical conclusion of denying the resurrection. If resurrection from the dead is impossible, then it follows that Christ has not risen from the dead. And if Christ has not risen from the dead, our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We are guilty of lying on God. We are still in our sins. Those who have died believing in Christ for hope have perished. And we, of all people, should be pitied for our false hope and our stupidity of living sacrificial lives for nothing. No professing Christian believes that. Yet Paul says this is what would be true if you say there is no resurrection. This is what would have to be true. This is why Henry Moore said if the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. But in conclusion, consider what he says in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the fact. This is the reality. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We've explored the, the reductio ad absurdum argumentation, re reducing the argument to its absurdity. And now Paul says, but, but, but in reality, the fact of the matter is, Christ has actually risen. Charles Hodge says, all the gloomy consequences presented in the preceding verses follow from the assumption that Christ did not rise from the dead. 
But as in point of fact, he did rise. So these things have no place. Our preaching is not in vain. Your faith is not vain. You are not in your sins. The dead in Christ have not perished. We are not more miserable than other men. The reverse of all this is true. Christ has not only risen, but he has risen in a representative character. His resurrection is the pledge of the resurrection of his people. Paul is brilliant. Look at what he does. He shows us all of these absurdities that would be true had the resurrection not occurred. Which means, if you reverse it, all of those things are true. This means that preaching is effectual. Our faith is precious and benefits us greatly. It does give us an advantage. We are faithfully representing God when we say that he raised Christ from the grave. And I love this. Our sins have been paid for. They are gone. And not only that, but we now have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And those who have died in Christ are enjoying his glorious presence in a way that we can't even imagine. And though we may suffer in this life, don't pity us. Because we have been given a joy and a peace that is not dependent upon circumstances. And not only that, to die is gain, which Paul says is far better. Don't pity me. If I die tomorrow, don't pity me. If I get persecuted and killed, don't pity me. Dear friends, those things are true. Because Christ has, in fact, risen from the dead. The truthfulness of these things rise and fall on the truthfulness of the resurrection. What what a glorious thing. What what a joyful thing. But dear friends, I want you to think about something. Christ did not leave heaven to be born of a woman and live a perfect, holy, righteous life and die the death of a sinner And have the Father's wrath poured out upon him. He was not buried in the tomb and raised again on the third day for no reason. What does that mean? Much has happened for our salvation. Much has been done to assure our salvation. So you better believe that if you die outside of Christ, you don't get a free pass. Dear friends, blood was shed. The dead had to be raised up 
so that our sins can be forgiven. Which means that if you die in your sins, God is not going to simply look over your sins and not punish you for them. What a terrible thing to neglect so great a salvation. But, but, but apart from God's justice and His wrath breathing down upon you, if you are an unbeliever, just consider the, the lengths that He went through to give us salvation. What, what a sweet Savior that, that woos you to Him. He says, yes, you can, you can escape wrath. And if, you, and if you don't do this, you will be punished. But, but, but I've provided for you abundantly. Come to me. Dear friends, turn to Christ. This passage we read this morning, talked about this morning, Romans 10, 9. Which, by the way, what? Includes the resurrection. If you confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. What a great Savior. What a glorious Christ. That not even the grave could hold him, but was raised again as the scripture says, for our justification. Dear friends, as we leave here, may we just have great joy and anticipation in the fact that not only will we one day have glorified minds, but but glorified bodies. That that as Christ was raised as a first fruit, so we will follow in his footsteps and be raised as well. And may we be overwhelmed with the glorious truth that Christ has, in fact, risen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth. That Christ died for our sins did not stay in the grave but was raised again and Father we thank you that that those of us who have hope in Christ know that even though our bodies go into the grave one day they will be raised again Father for those of you for those here who don't know that hope may, may they come to know you this day Help each and every person here to be overwhelmed by how great of a salvation you have provided for us. And Father, may it cause each and every one of us to be overwhelmed with your grace and your mercy. Father, for the wages of sin is death, but you have given us grace and mercy instead of death. What a glorious truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.